Hey, what's up, everybody? It's the Whistling in the Dark podcast, episode 13. Today is Sunday, July 22nd, 2018. Uh, So Sunday evening here, and it has been uh, a week since my last episode. Um, So I actually tried to uh, record an episode uh, the other day. It might have it might have just been Friday night, um, but I got home I got home pretty late, but uh, I I was sort of inspired a little bit by I was listening to um, the recent episode of Run Your Mouth podcast by uh, Robbie the Fire Bernstein and um, it it was like horrific sound quality and um, you know the editing was all fucked up. But, you know, it was hysterical. And, um, you know, it's like he sort of takes his equipment into, you know, whatever um, different situations. I mean, kind of like takes it on the road. And I don't know, you know, he's different people involved. And, you know, my setup is definitely limited to being here uh, in the studio for now. Um, I still haven't gotten the, uh, I got this software. It's supposed to be like super easy to route in like any audio you want. Um, which mainly I would use it for Skype calls. And then also, <clears throat> you know, like ma- like playing YouTube videos, like you could basically just route any audio for, off of Chrome into a channel and the logic and, you know, and you pretty much do whatever you want. And uh, this proven to be a lot more difficult. I mean, granted, I didn't spend a ton of time on it. But um, anyway, so I was home and, you know, it's just like lately I've been just I just had a lot going on, like after work at night, you know, it's like I get home at like 11 o'clock. You know, I, I smoke cigars pretty much every night. And, you know, so I, I pretty much totally addicted that if I didn't smoke, I would have trouble sleeping. So, you know, that's like another hour and then, you know, whatever. I mean, it's it's pretty late for me to be doing a podcast, like starting it at midnight. Um, you know, I get up, go to work, whatever, get in the morning and work all day, do other stuff after work. And <clears throat> I don't know. So I decided I was like, hey, I got this iPad. I mean, there's GarageBand on it. I gave it a spin, put in like earbuds and just recorded it. And if that worked out, I was like, you know, you can get like a little interface that at least allows you to use some sort of real microphone. Um, and I recorded, I actually did like a whole episode sitting outside, smoking a cigar. You could hear like the crickets and everything. And, um, and it's on my iPad, but it just like filled up all the storage. And I guess to like get it off, you need to bounce it to like a wave file or whatever. And, uh, you know, that means you need like all of that storage again. Like, anyway, I, I just have some cheap, like, uh, the lowest level iPad you can get. Um, so it just is languishing there and you know since what i talk about is pretty like um news based uh, i don't think i'm ever gonna put it up so i uh i'll probably give this a spin again i i actually i mean the sound quality wasn't that bad i mean it's obviously there's more 
noise and stuff um, because it's like outside and, you know, you hear cars driving by or, you know, like the crickets just constantly going. But I mean, I also thought it was kind of cool, you know, as well. And I can still bring it into logic like before I, uh, you know, release it um, in the uh, podcast feed, you know, so there's, you know, I can still like do some noise reduction and, you know, sort of kind of fatten up stuff and whatever equalizer you know and compress things and you know just sort of make it sound better so uh, I still might do that and if if I do you know it's going to make it a lot easier to sort of um bring in uh or sort of do more episodes maybe more shorter episodes stuff like that um so we'll see I um so uh the probably the biggest thing that's happened this week um since I last uh, did the episode, which it was kind of funny because the episode was a, a lot about Ukraine, which is sort of, you know, implicitly about Russia, was this sort of uh, Trump-Putin um, summit thing. And, you know, at this point, I'm assuming you've been like bludgeoned to death with a bunch of people's opinions on it. Hopefully, you know, you're finding your way to people like Tom Woods or Scott Horton or Dave Smith um, to sort of, you know, kind of get you back to reality. Um, You know, just uh, briefly, uh, you know, my, uh, you know, without hearing anything from anybody else and just listening to some of the audio and press conferences and stuff or whatever, I mean, my honest, like, deep down feeling was good. You know, I, I felt... Uh, you know, a bit of a bit of hope that, you know, that uh, these, you know, that our president, that the president of the United States is actually sitting there, you know, with with the leader of Russia and not just like trashing them, not trying to bully them, you know, not talking all this hard talk. Um, and, you know, it. It, this uh, this goes back to you know something I talked about a while a, a bunch of episodes ago, but just like this weird foreign policy machismo that my entire life the U.S. has had. I, I'm not really sure you know when it developed. Um, maybe it was uh, you know after sort of World War II that you know we just became this just bully of the world, and you know there it's there there's never you know like anything except just like the extreme u.s hardline is is like you know borderline treason or uh, you know um i mean there there's so much crazy stuff about you know what he said i uh there was um some some article comparing it to uh, Pearl Harbor. <laughs> I mean, I I don't even. I, I mean, may, maybe if you read the guts of the article, it didn't mean. But like you know, again, I mean, you're obviously writing a, a supposed to be a catchy headline. I mean, that's what you want people to see. And so I saw it, and I think you're an idiot. You know, when I read that, I, you know, I think you're an idiot, and it, it doesn't make me want to dig in any further. Uh, I mean, I, I can hardly find any relationship between the uh, this recent summit and and Pearl Harbor. I mean, zero people died. Uh, it was it was actually. I mean, it's like the fucking opposite, right? Like Japan fucking started a war, 
And Trump and Putin are like doing the opposite of starting a war. They're peacefully talking with each other. Um, but, you know, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come up with a good analogy, but it's something that I see a lot in life. Like, just this, like, boogeyman thing. Like, you know, uh, I mean, you definitely saw it in 2008, you know, and it's part of the reasoning that we had the, you know, that, like, everybody was convinced that, yeah, like, the banks are super shitty and they're fucked up, but they are too big to fail. And, you know, we just can't, you know, it would it would be like, you know, economic Armageddon, you know, but it's, but like that's as far as it goes, right? No, you know, once somebody says that and they are sort of considered to be a more of an authority than you, it, you know, I, I would say that most people, they just kind of shiver in fear and agree. Um, but, you know, I've always, you know, when people sort of, uh, kind of talk like that to me I mean I just sort of ask like you know well what exactly do you mean by Armageddon you know what I mean like what is the big fear like what what's gonna happen you know it's just like oh the economy will grind to a halt well why you know so I mean it's totally like stuff like that is is uh is totally untrue um you know like I don't need fucking Chase Bank or Bank of America to li like live my life, live my economic life, you know, um, people will figure it out, you know, <laughs> that uh, the like massive fucking government protected bureaucracy like, you know, it's not a monopoly, but um, in banking, but it's close, you know, it's it's. Sure, certainly heading that direction and you know the government has done like everything <laughs> it can to sort of make that group uh, smaller and smaller the group of people that have market share in banking in the United States and uh, you know when that shit implodes there is like no amount of reasoning for me that is going to get me to buy that like for my own good, we need to bail these fucking banks out so they can stay and, like, hold on to their, like, oligarchy or whatever. Anyway, um, you know, and, and I, you know, I see stuff like that a lot. It's just, like, status quo, you know? Like, once the status quo is set up, you, you know, you just go with it, right? Like, that's, it, it doesn't really need... Um, explanation, it's just sort of like, it, it, it's just like, yeah, need, it needs no explanation, you know, it's just like, this is the way it is, and, um, I, you know, I feel like this Trump stuff, like, quickly, or this Russia stuff, I guess, you know, I mean, how quickly has Russia been elevated to just this, like, super evil, uh, you know, enemy of ours, you know, um, I mean, it's, you know, it's amazing that there's just never, you know, I'm 41 years old, and I don't think I've taken a breath in life on this planet where 
the powers that be were not utterly convinced that there was just some like massive, you know, fucking enemy with like total annihilation of the United States and our way of life, like as their goal. Um, and I, you know, I, I mean, maybe when I was younger, I may have bought it a little bit. I, I don't know, but you're talking really young, man. Like, uh, I mean, I definitely, when I was young, I was really into Ronald Reagan, um, and not for any sort of policy thing. I don't know. He just seemed like a guy, you know, like a male sort of older role model, you know, uh, I mean, Fuck, man, my, you know, my dad died when I was four years old. I mean, I think I was sort of like hurting and looking to that. And, and uh, I think that he sort of seemed like that, like sort of fatherly or like grandfatherly figure. And uh, I mean, I feel like at that age, whatever, I'm not voting anyway, you know, uh, who cares? Um, but I just don't I don't know what the excuse is. I mean, I, I don't I don't know if it's intelligence or. You know, I mean, and I feel like it's just the common, it's the common theme, I think, of my podcast is like trying to understand why people don't uh, agree with the sort of non-aggression principle, you know, voluntarist way of looking at the world. You know, like how are people duped into thinking that, that theft and violence in certain um, areas when not directed at them is like the way to go. Like, because I, I think that in a very core level, people are fundamentally are like voluntarists and do get the non-aggression principle, you know? Um, people just like, you know, if there's like free pizza, you know, at work and I'm the last person that walks into the break room, I get the shitty slice of pizza if there's any left. And like, I feel like everybody gets that, right? Like, that's what you get. Like, you came in last. Like, what? how else are we going to divvy it up? Like, what other, you know, merit system are we going to do? And, um... You know, and, and if, if a guy is there with two slices of pizza on his plate, or maybe he ate a slice and now he's eating a second slice, like if I just went and said, whoa, like I didn't even have one and just took it out of his mouth or out of his hand or off his plate, like people get that, that like, uh, you know, I mean, at least, you know, in the U.S., like, I don't know, maybe, you know, maybe in France, that's like, okay to like, rip it out of their, you know, hands. And, um, but like any use of violence is like, obviously, you know, totally unacceptable in like our day to day lives and the, the totally unacceptable for like the way that we conduct business. And like the only way that I think that we get convinced of it, that it is okay is when somebody has, like, already aggressed against us, right? Like, you know, if if somebody, like, broke into my house and was, like, running out with the TV 
And, like, I ran him down and, like, tackled him and, like, took my TV back. Um, you know, once again, like, nobody's got a problem with that. Like, people get that it's, like, yeah, they, it's totally different if that person had gone to the store, like, Best Buy and bought the TV and they were walking down the street and I fucking ran and tackled him and took it. You know, obviously, like, that's not okay. And, like, people don't, you know, they don't, they're not aware that, like, the difference is, like, this non-aggression principle thing. Like, in general, like, you need context to know if it's okay to tackle somebody walking down the street with a television and taking it. And how do you know whether it's okay or not? It's fucking the property rights. It's, like, who owns the TV, you know, who, who legally is is the owner of that television? And, like, um, anyway, so, you know, I, I think that, like, I don't know, 10 out of 10 people that I would interview about those two scenarios would agree that, like, it's okay for me to tackle the guy that I see running out with my TV, and it's not okay for me to tackle the guy that bought the TV at Best Buy. You know, and... Outside of that, like, you know, when then I wonder then, okay, how do you get to let's kill everybody in Russia or in the Middle East or in South America or in Vietnam or, you know, whatever it is, right? Like, whatever, yeah, like, whatever is the lie or the war of the day, you know, how do they get on board? And I... I'm kind of thinking, like, what I'm thinking today about it, at least, is there, that's where all the, like, propaganda and lie comes in. Because they are, you know, for instance, oh, like, Russia, people are, like, convinced Russia hacked our elections. And Russia attacked, you know, some, come, some other countries or whatever. And, I mean, I don't think anybody has a clue about what's happening in Syria. But they know that, like, Russia's in there and is kind of opposed to what we're doing. And then there's a sort of the that kind of implicit, like, forever pass that the U.S. gets from so many people that, like... You know, they're like, oh, they didn't. I, I forget the name of the country. It's like Crimea or something. Uh, I guess it's some uh, small bordering land in Russia or that was it was part of Russia that, you know, separated itself, whatever. And I guess like uh, Russia sort of violently like took it back. Um, you know, people are like, oh, why didn't Trump confront him about that? And it's. You know, like, it's such a small thing compared to what we've done, what we being the U.S. military and, you know, the CIA and stuff, you know, in, uh, in the, you know, since 9-11, all through the Middle East. I mean, okay, like, I'll see your Crimea and I'll raise you Syria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, Egypt, and Libya, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, in these fucking places are like destroyed, um, you know, millions dead. I mean, you know, there's nothing like that. So, um, any anyway, I mean, I, I some, I'm kind of rambling, you know, and I'm trying to. I feel like I'm just on this continuous kind of quest to try to like reason out in my head, like how are people getting 
duped because that's, you know, I, I don't know if they're ever going to like if we're ever going to be in a place where our country is that we reside in is not at the forefront of like fucking murdering all over the world. Uh, we probably need to figure that out, figure out like how do they get people on their side? Um you know, like Dave Smith pointed out a number of times, it's like, you know, for the last, at least the last few elections, uh, the U.S. has always chosen the, you know, the most anti-war candidate of at least of like the two standing, you know, um, this year, uh, this last run, Trump certainly was like way more anti-war uh, than Hillary, um, uh, Obama. Uh, was certainly over Bush. And then Bush even in uh, his uh, when he was running, he actually ran on like being like anti-war and stuff and like anti the imperialist stuff. And but then somehow, you know, they always wind up like getting in line and doing it anyway. And I mean, I, I don't really know how to parse that. I I don't know if they were just always full of shit or like there's something about this like deep state boogeyman that keeps corrupting these great men that we uh, elect as president. Um, I, you know, maybe it's like a mix of both. I, you know, I don't really know. Um, but yeah, this, uh, so this, you know, we have certainly watched this happen um, very quickly. Um, I mean, if you're, if you're a libertarian, that's sort of, you know, our, our position is fixed. And then, you know, we've sort of watched, I mean, depending on how old you are, I, you know, I, I can't go back much further than, you know, George W. Bush's presidency. Um, it, you know, the Clinton years, I was I wasn't paying a lot of attention and, you know, certainly I'm not like Reagan or before. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, I mean, I I've watched as like the sort of fixed anti-war position was in total opposition to like the neocons uh, that were in the Bush regime and sort of had friends on the Democrat side, you know, and then Obama was elected and it was supposed to be this big, great thing. Um, and, you know, it turned out to be a big fat liar and started a bunch of other wars, took out a bunch of other leaders, destroyed a bunch of other countries. Uh, and then, you know, so now it's like the anti-war libertarian side uh, is like pretty lonely. Um, and then, you know, you sort of had Trump. Trump was the only one that's at least had like some rhetoric while he was running that that aligned with that the anti-war position a little bit. You know, I mean, he he was talking about you know why while like Hillary and and uh the other like Republican candidates were talking about like implementing like a no-fly zone uh in Syria in areas where like Russian planes were flying you know Trump was talking about like well maybe we can kind of like work uh with Russia to like get rid of ISIS and then just basically fucking back out of all this stuff like just like end it like like get ISIS out of Syria and then we get out of like Syria or whatever, um, but 
I, it's hard to really say that like Trump has been like anti-war at all. Um, but he's, you know, he, the best things he's done are these like two, I guess, like these two summits, you know, <laughs> like talking to North Korea, talking to Russia. Um, you know, it's it's kind of interesting, you know, because there's been such an intense focus on the Middle East since 9-11, you know, since 2001. And all of a sudden, you know, Trump's in here and, uh, you know, he's starting uh, to, to sort of move this focus towards like North Korea and Russia, but in a, a peaceful way, which is, is interesting, at least for now. I mean, you know, I'm certainly not like staking my reputation on anything this guy w uh, winds up doing. But um, so anyway, uh, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, how much more there I, I really want to say about it i mean i think it i think it just it fits in like just exactly like what we've been you know what we've been talking about with the propaganda and um you know i i you know for me i'm a little bit hopeful about it um i would love to see like uh you know better relationship between the U.S. and, like, every every country, you know, but especially, you know, one with all, all these nukes. It's, you know, it's, it's something like but the U.S. and Russia together control, like, 90% of the nuclear missiles, like, in the world. I mean, the whole world should be rooting for this. Like, why? The only way that, like, people are opposed to this is, like, because they've getting fucking propaganda just rammed down their throat by like cnn huffington post msnbc like whatever calling this guy a traitor you know treason um yeah it's it's pretty it's pretty insane um so i mean you know we'll keep our eyes on that uh it again it, yeah, it was sort of more of a article or news a little bit earlier in the week i know i'm kind of late getting to it because of my you know slow schedule here um but you know i'm sure there'll be stuff to talk about with this in the following weeks and, and certainly you know some north korea developments um but there have been some interesting uh other developments in the news a couple of them at least are pretty pretty good um so here's an Engadget, Engadget article from uh, the 18th. Uh, you can legally download 3D printed gun designs next month. Um, so a guy named, I believe it's Cody Wilson. Yeah, Cody Wilson. He had a company or has a company called Defense Distributed down in Austin, Texas. And... Um, so he basically uh, he got, he got a lot of uh, a lot of press over creating the first three D printed gun, <clears throat> and it was actually printed with like the kind of standard uh, plastics you know that these three uh, D printers use. And um, yeah, he did like some YouTube like live video thing or something and fired the first one and it actually worked. And I, I mean, I, they're pretty much like one shot <laughs> weapons. Um, but after that, you know, and it, uh, it eventually there was like a case brought to him. And uh, well, I mean, I can 
this might summarize it better. So 3D gun printing advocate Defense Distributed has emerged triumphant in a legal battle to freely publish online blueprints that could allow users to manufacture firearms. The victory spells the end of an ongoing lawsuit against the U.S. Department of State, which in 2013 forced Defense Distributed founder Cody Wilson to pull down files from the DEFCAD website uh, because they violated international traffic and arms regulations uh, protections. The State Department argued the blueprints of Wilson's Liberator pistol, which had already been downloaded more than 100,000 times, were classified as exports and could therefore not be distributed according to law. Together with the Second Amendment Foundation, Defense Distributed fought back by suing the State Department for trampling on the right to free speech. Now, after three years, the government has approved the gun blueprints um, for public release. This means that... From August 1st, which is when Wilson intends to relaunch DefCAD, it will be legal to download the schematics for a 3D printed gun. The sanction is being appealed in various ways, but ultimately it could set a precedent for other countries who previously deemed the printing of 3D guns illegal. Um, so that's a pretty short and sweet write-up about it. That's the entire article. Uh, and... Yeah, man. So uh, I, I'm not sure how much that we've ever really talked about, um, you know, gun control or whatever. You know, my thoughts on that. But uh, you know, you can kind of just again, like, look at like the ingression principle. You know, whatever. Um, but one thing that I do think that comes in with the uh, gun control debate is, uh, you know, there is an idea of responsibility. You know, with like rights come responsibilities. Um, and, uh, I don't know I have really good, a good citation for that. Um, I feel like, uh, Ch uh, Michael Bednarik was the first person I ever really heard talk about that in his like constitution classes. Um, those are pretty neat. Um, if you ever get a chance to uh, look, look him up and, um, but yeah, it, I mean, basically it's, it's like the idea is, you know, if I, you know, have a machine gun in my house, you know, by like the sort of anarchist principles or whatever, you know, I mean, it's like my business, right? But if I, if I go give that machine gun, I load it up and I give it to some four-year-old kid and, and say, hey, yeah, like go into that, you know, crowded uh, store there and, and pull in the trigger, you know, and the and the child goes in there and shoots a bunch of people, you know, you, uh, again, like, I mean, I feel like these things are like pretty common sense. Like, I feel like most people would agree that that I'm the one that did something wrong, not the four year old child. Right. The four year old child just like doesn't have the wherewithal to like understand what the machine gun is. It probably doesn't get like necessarily like human life or the finality of like putting a bullet into somebody and whatever. I mean, it's like it's pretty obvious. So um, I think that's a part of the gun control debate that I think would make our side of it a lot more palatable if, you know, we talked about that. I, I've often said that I think that if we had a purely free market and we didn't have government interference in, like, the firearm market or whatever, just like the total anarcho-capitalist, I, I think there would be, like, more gun control. 
Like, I think it would be harder to get a gun because right now, you know, you, you kind of have like these gun stores or whatever, and they, whatever is the law, they all, they, to, in order for them to be free and clear, they just have to like run your social security number through some check site that the government provides or whatever, you know, maybe some like crony company has like the, uh, you know, they have the, uh, the like exclusive contract or some bullshit and uh you know that's it man like they just can put that you know your number in there and it comes up green and you're good right like they are completely off the hook for any pro problem like any po uh, possible like prosecution right like the law is that you know the regulations are 100 percent from the government down, you know, that gun store guy has to not make any judgment call uh, or do any other work other than that. And once that box is checked, like he's protected. But in, in, you know, in a free market, you know, that process would be more dynamic, right? Like if a gun, if a, uh, a gun shop was consistently selling children, you know, like machine guns, I mean, that person would would be in trouble for that, you know, like that, that they, you know, that wouldn't be OK. Like whatever these whatever damage these children were doing would be on them, would be on the gun owner, you know, or the gun store, you know, owner like doing this. And and I think that to me, like, it's pretty clear that I, I or, you know, what I imagine would happen would be, you know, just sort of like. Uh, background check companies and you know because now now like the gun shop owner really wants like a legitimate background check like something that's going to protect him in court it's like insurance you know or something like that like it, it, this person's going to pay a service that like hey all right like if you want to buy a gun from me well you've got to register with this service uh, or, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do business with you uh, because, you know, if you go out and kill somebody or whatever. And now, you know, this gun store owner doesn't have to be an expert in background checks because that's not their business. Right. Like they don't, you know, regular people. That's not that's a very like specialized business. And now you, you've created a market for people that are really good at that, that like really good at predicting who is going to like go crazy with a gun and who knows how to handle it and you know and again it like a lot of other things it doesn't have to be these just stupid like black and white like oh, are you over 18 yes have you ever committed a felony no like are you in this database for like mental problems no okay you can have a gun like but, like, how do you get in those databases, right? How do you get a criminal record? Like, you have to commit, you know what I mean? Like, you're never going to, uh, anyway, I mean, uh, and, like, I don't know how they would do it. I'm not an expert in background checks. I'm just sort of, it just seems, like, very clear that if you created, like, the if you sort of remove these regulations, it would naturally create a market. If you allow, and if you allowed people to like be sued for giving guns, I mean, right now, clearly, like if I just gave a gun to a kid and they walked into a store, you know, shot somebody like, yeah, but I'm, I'm saying at, at the level of like a gun store, you know, um, as long as like they check these boxes. And so, 
you know, I'm I I'm, I tend to like not be such a rah rah gun person. I mean, I just I I think that it's not like oh anybody can should be able to have any gun they want. Um, you know, I certainly don't want children to have like rocket launchers, right? Like I don't, I don't want children to, to have like nuclear launch codes. Um, so there's some amount of limiting I want of this. And I just, my thing is, I think that the free market should be the thing that limits it and market-based regulations would do a much better job. I think you would have many less of these, you know, Kids going into schools and stuff, you know, because these companies that would be doing the checks would be much, much better at it, you know. Um, so anyway, so that that's more of like my general take on it. Uh, but specifically, this is cool. And uh, I did I heard uh, he, he was on um, he was on Michael Malice's new show. I think it's called You're Welcome. Uh, he's also on Gas Digital Network, which is what Dave Smith is on. And um, so Co he interviewed Cody Wilson. And um, Cody Wilson was saying that, you know, and I mean, he was saying, obviously, you got to check check for yourself, check your own, <laughs> you know, make sure, you know, your own laws. Like he's not a lawyer, but he was saying the basic idea is that any gun that is legal for you to own is also legal for you to make for yourself. So, you know, it, like in I'm in Georgia, so, you know, we pretty much we can have like a regular AR-15 or whatever. Um, in California, there's some limitations to that or New York and maybe some other places, you know, so you can't make one that would be illegal to buy in a store. You know, I, I think they have like limits on magazine sizes or something like that. Um, but as long as it's, you know, fits that legal description is pretty much you're good to go. Now, it sounds like, well, how the hell would I produce a AR-15? Well, the interesting thing is they sell, um, I'm going to try to bring this up, defense distributed. They are supposed to be selling, um, uh, ghost scanner. Ah, uh, maybe they don't have stuff up yet. I, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. No, there. Yeah, there it is. This ghost. So, um, if you go to ghostgunner.net, they have a product called Ghost Gunner Two. It's an open source hardware project. Ghost Gunner is a general purpose CNC mill built upon a large body of open source work. Blah blah blah. Whatever. So, um, so three D printing is uh, another. Uh, it's basically it's like additive um, printing. Or additive manufacturing. So um, the I, if you think about like just a regular printer, how regular printer works when you know you're, you're printing out like a word document, you know the piece of paper sort of like gets rolled through, and there's a printer head like that moves back and forth, and it drops ink, you know, as the paper sort of moves under it. Um, and, you know, so it basically like the paper takes one pass on a normal printer and it drops the ink and then that's like the words or pictures or whatever. So it, that and that the ink that it drops is like, you know, 
imperceptibly thin. It's essentially absorbed into the paper. It's not like a, a printed, you know, a piece of paper that comes out of a printer is not like thicker, right? Well, a 3D printer is very similar, but instead of just dropping ink on this piece of paper, it's, it's like dropping this uh, wax, like sort of little wax drops. Um, or wax, I don't know, some kind of plastic. They, they actually use, there, there's a whole bunch of different materials. That's a big part of the research is, you know, expanding the types of materials you can make stuff out of. But, the, you know, the, the main ones, the ones that, like, you would probably have in your house at this point, they do, um, like, some sort of plastic thing. And so, but instead of just making one pass, so let's say it starts like this this image, right? And it's, like, a millimeter high or whatever, but then, then it, it takes another pass across, you know, the, um, <clears throat> the area, the sort of printing area. And it adds a second millimeter layer and then a third millimeter, a fourth, you know, and it just sort of goes back and forth, back and forth until it builds up like an actual three-dimensional object, uh, like one millimeter at a time. So, like, you can just imagine it prints, it sort of just adds a bunch of cross sections until it sort of completed the whole object. So that's like additive manufacturing, and that's what the Liberator pistol is made sort of in that way. But this Ghost Gunner project uses uh, a milling machine, and the milling machine sort of like the uh, it's the other way. It's um, you know, it takes uh, <clears throat> excuse me, it takes basically like a block of metal and cuts it down into like what you want. And uh, it's pretty cool, you know. Um, I mean, the, the 3D printing stuff is definitely like really interesting. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm definitely very, very fascinated by that technology and everything. Um, but, uh, and they, I believe you can do 3D printing metal. Um, but, I, you know, I just... I'm not, I, I feel like no matter what, uh, additive printing is always going to produce structurally inferior things, you know, instead of being able to carve, you know, like think about like your, uh, like a MacBook Pro, right? They talk about, it's like the unibody, right? Um, there's something to that. Like when they make these alloys, you know, they can make really, really good alloys. And then if you sort of had to take that and then melt it down and drop it like drip by drip into a new sort of formation, it would definitely lose some of that like strength. Uh, and, you know, like structural integrity or whatever that the original block had if you made that same thing, that same thing by like carving out of that block. And so all the connected pieces were sort of unibody. They're all part of the original sort of alloy creation. Um, so, uh, and I mean, I'm a little bit talking about out of my ass here, but, uh, I, I feel like there's just no way, like, like whatever improvements the 3d printers make in like structural integrity and materials, you know, technology, I feel like just the, you know, um, the milling sort of alloy developers are just going to always be making that same progress also, like everything's going to keep getting better, but you know, the, sort of more traditional milling processes that are using like more traditional like alloys and stuff. Uh, I think you're just going to always be out ahead. So, um, but the cool thing about this ghost gunner project is that it, uh, fr from like an end user point of view, it's roughly like the same, um, you know, the same process, uh, uh, you know, as 3d printing. Um, 
I'm trying to see if there's a uh, a price here. It's um, your deposit is two hundred fifty dollars. I have I, I'm not I'm not quite sure how much this thing is going to ultimately cost. Um, but it's uh, it's not. I don't think it's going to be out, like outrageously expensive. Um, but I, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like a couple thousand dollars. I mean, you know, I mean, considering what you can make with it. But anyway, so but the idea with this is like, so like an AR-15. Um, again, I you know I I feel like I, I'm not sure if people listening and know all this stuff. Uh, and I'm I'm not an expert, so I'm probably like butchering some of this stuff. Um, you know, like I'm not a 3D printing expert. I'm certainly not a gun, like a real legit gun guy or anything. Um, but, you know, so uh, the AR-15, I mean, I talk about that because it's like the most demonized thing there is. So uh, with the AR, you know, it's really like these guns are like, they're, they're kind of like kit guns, you know. There's so many pieces to them. And I guess like when they wanted to start regulating, getting serial numbers on them, they started to think, you know, in government, like, well, how, how what, you know, what do we put? A serial number on everything? You know, like a serial number on the barrel, on the stock, you know, on the trigger. I mean, what, like the little springs in it. I, you know, there's so many parts that like, you know, how do we, where, where do we pick to you know, to slap this regulation. So they chose to put it on the lower receiver. And um, the lower receiver is the part of the uh, the gun that the magazine slides into. It's the part that has this sort of like uh, where the trigger is kind of housed inside, like the sort of that ring kind of loop at the bottom there. I don't know if you can imagine it. But anyway, it's just like a solid hunk of metal. And there's not it's it's not a particularly difficult you know manufacturing thing to pull off or whatever, um, and so the the idea is it, so if you own uh, if you buy a lower receiver with a serial number you effectively own an AR-15 in the eyes of the government, um, and I you know I actually had this experience I, I house my house was robbed a, a while back. Um, and uh, it was like some young kids and you know, he stole a bunch of stuff. The cops got almost all my stuff back like before I even knew like what had happened. And, and you know, they told me to go home, check, see, you know, just kind of see what was missing and whatever. And, you know, make sure everything's, you know, secure or whatever. And then come and because they, they said, hey, you know, we got a bunch of stuff. So, um, you know, come pick it up. And so I, I went, madam, and, and uh, you know, what I went to the cop station and they were just like, you know, kind of like bug eyed, you know, and it was just like, yo, man, so did you find your AR? And I was like, what? And they were like, you know, we, you know, we can't find, we didn't find it anywhere. We kept looking and, you know, and so they were freaked out. They thought this like 14 year old kids were running around and like, you know, uh, South, uh, Southeast Atlanta projects, like with AR-15 just <laughs> going nuts. And I was like, oh no, it's, I, you know, it's just a lower, uh, it's just the lower, it's not built out. And they were like, oh, phew. so they had literally had no idea. There's no legal difference, right? I, if I had ordered all of the parts online, none of that would have registered on their end. All they know is I bought the lower. And so basically the idea is, it's legal for me to own all this other stuff. I mean, it's it's legal for me to own an AR-15. And since that's the case, I could buy this Ghost Gunner 2 thing, this mill, get the schematics, get the right, like, blocks of metal or alloy or whatever. I could mill it out. 
and mill out the lower receiver. And then that's all I got to do. After that, I can just buy everything else out, like just normal. I can buy the barrels and, and stocks and whatever else, you know, I you know all the other pieces, trigger assemblies and everything, and just, you know, build it, Have maybe have a, somebody put it together for me. I mean, I'm not, you know, I have friends that can do it. I'm, I'm not, you know, able to do it. And then I have like a completely legal off the books AR-15. Um, that's pretty crazy. <laughs> so um, that's like the big the big deal to me with that is, um, you know, and, and, you know, from kind of like the philosophical side of it, it, Cody Wilson is pretty interesting. He talks about the idea that like, you know, he doesn't even really get into the gun, like gun control debate and like what's right and what's wrong. And his whole thing is like, this is the last days of this type of control. Uh, you know, he's like, it, 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 it doesn't matter what you think when I can just make it at my house. You know, if I can make this AR, I mean, you know, sure. I'm not saying that they cannot come up with new regulations later, but it's going to be a while, right? Like, I mean, they somehow they, they Cody Wilson won this case and, uh, on the first amendment basis. And now like you know, we're going to be able to fucking, I mean, there's going to be so many guns produced completely invisibly to the, to the U.S. government, uh, inside its own borders because of this. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I, it can obviously be used for nefarious reasons and stuff like that. And that's kind of his point. It's just like, you, you got to start thinking about it differently. Like you, you just, you got to like, because that ship has sailed, you know? Um, and I don't know, you know, one thing that happened not too long ago is, uh, I guess it was like before I was doing the podcast, but they passed some laws about like, um, sex trafficking websites or whatever in like, a, uh, that site backpage.com got taken down. And, um, so backpage is like, uh, was like a super like sleazy version of Craigslist. So like back in the day, like Craigslist used to have like prostitutes ads and, and stuff like that. And then, um, I don't, I actually don't know exactly how it went. I don't know if they sort of just took it down because they just, they were kind of big enough and I, I don't I think they maybe they didn't want that kind of like you know whatever uh, that reputation attached to them um they kept their like personals up uh for a long long time after that but then uh so I don't know if that happened and then it opened up then Backpage sort of started and took over that you know sort of uh un unserved uh, market um but anyway so you know they uh they ran for a long time and then they you know in in the past this like i think in 2018 at some point you know they got like seized or whatever and taken down uh for like sex trafficking stuff um and I don't like I don't totally know uh, like the details. I mean, I, I think that there may be a little bit more than just them ha allowing, you know, prostitutes to advertise on their site. Um, I mean, and if that's the case, I mean, if they're like legitimately involved in like trafficking people against their will, I mean, obviously, like, you know, no bueno. Um, but, uh, you know, 
the uh, if if the own the thing is is that the regulation make it illegal for U.S. companies to have websites where people advertise, uh, like where prostitutes advertise. Um, so you know, like wherever you stand on any of that or whatever, I mean, the fact is that they did it. Is that for a long, long time it, it was like. Oh, you could just do it, man. Like prostitutes could just advertise online and like nothing ever happened to anybody. I mean, sure, I would imagine they had to worry about like police answering the ads and showing up and arresting them or whatever. Um, but, you know, but like the websites themselves, there were some, you know, older laws passed in like the 90s that kind of protected them. That basically said, like, look, you're not responsible for what people write on your website. You know, um, maybe maybe there's like if your website has like an illegal mission statement. OK, but like if people say something illegal, you know, whatever. Um, so apparently like that has changed and it's like specifically around like the sex, sex trafficking. But. What they always say is sex trafficking, but the wording of it is prostitution, you know, which is not the same as fucking like illegal sex trafficking. I mean, one is voluntary, you know, interactions between two people. And another one is like an absolute violation of somebody's like freedom. You know what I mean? Like a uh, sex trafficking implies that you're like fucking kidnapping people, right? Like obviously like that's bad. And then like prostitution is like, there is in no way is like prostitution a violation of the non-aggression principle, you know, but they got them both in one thing. So I, you know, I, to me, after seeing that and also this like GDPR regulations uh, that came down, you know, not too long ago that have had like sweeping effects across uh, the Internet and the way websites operate. And I think like a lot of companies, I think small companies are going to go out of business because of it. And, uh, you know, seeing that they figured it out, they've kind of figured out like some they finally made some headway with like regulations. And there's another thing not so long about long ago about like taxes, uh, sales tax in the United States in uh, different websites and how they have to pay like the state sales tax now or, you know, whatever. Uh, but they're figuring it out, right? They're figuring out how to regulate it. It just took them a long time. And I mean, that's what I think. Like, I think that it's like, look, you know, this thing drops like August 1st, like, Get out there, man, and start, uh, you know, start building your ARs, you know, start building your guns because eventually they're going to like start to figure out how to like close that door down. And then, I mean, you can still go if you're like a fucking, you know, crazy, you know, you're like a legit freedom fighter or whatever. But, you know, I, I you know, I, I have not certainly proven to to like be willing to sacrifice like my own day to day life, uh, you know, for in defense of, you know, these ideas. I mean, I just try to talk about them. I try to vote for like somebody if they're actually espousing these ideals and, you know, and uh, but like I'm not going to like go open carry and some. Well, I don't even believe that that's like a thing. I mean, the main thing is like stop killing people, you know, <laughs> um, but. You know, I do like the idea of me being able to, like, defend myself, uh, you know, any way I would like. Uh, and um, this is, like, a big a big part of it. 
Um, so that was, uh, you know, that's pretty cool. So that came down. I mean, I, you know, I guess to keep a keep an eye out for how how long that sort of stays uh, it stays legal for us to do it. Um, but I would definitely, man. I mean, if you've got some some extra money laying around, I would really look into this ghost gunner thing. Um, you know, because I, I mean, even you know, like again, it's like you can just make you could just make a bunch of lower receivers. Uh, I, you know, I don't know how many fucking ARs you really want at your house because again, it is illegal to make these and sell them. So you know, you gotta you gotta think about that. Um, I would probably illegal to even gift them to your friends. Um, you know, <laughs> these are major violations. Like these are years in prison kind of violations. So, you know, just if if your friends want it, then you know they need to buy their own like ghost gunner two setup and then you can certainly if you've already figured out how to do it you can help them um all right so that's uh that's a big big thing right right u.s population is gonna we're already like so heavily armed um <laughs> I, I i don't know if i shared this article or we i don't know if we talked about it um and a couple either last week or a week before but the uh, the one the one about some stats came out recently. They like the private citizens in the U.S. Uh, it was something like every two months buys more firearms than uh, like the entire like all of the police in the entire United States have like own collectively. So two every two months we're fucking like adding more, that many guns to the private arsenal. Um, you know, it does, it does make you think like if there, if there ever was some, you know, situation went down, I mean, obviously we don't have like Apache helicopters and stuff, but look at how much trouble they're having, they had in like Vietnam, you know, and they were not a well-armed group, you know, like we are, um, so anyway, uh, so, all right, so we got guns moving in the right direction, that's pretty cool, um, and due to technology, just like the internet, right? Like the internet really, I, I think, has kind of at least broken or allowed some slivers of light to come through this just like insane, you know, mainstream media control of the thought process of the U.S. population, you know, and that's from just the internet and them not knowing how to, to regulate it. So, you know, while I, I keep trying to figure out, you know, how the hell are these people getting duped into war, I mean, maybe... The real way is just like these like techno anarchists or whatever, like people that just are like, look, we just like, fuck getting into these debates. Just push the technology that's going to lead to freedom that they just can't control. Um, so we'll see. And, you know, if they do just like completely just destroy the freedom of the Internet then we got the dark web. I mean, that's just completely untapped, you know. I mean, you know how hard it's going to be to regulate the dark web, like the next stage. Um, and then, you know, and if, if people really started focusing like development into that, I mean, I don't know. You know, I mean, I, I think we got a, I think we got a good runway, you know, and who knows what comes after that. Um, so uh, the next uh, uh, article or topic I wanted to talk about, a, a buddy of mine, um, guy, he works, uh, he works for Facebook for Oculus. And he's a big, big time libertarian, anarcho-capitalist. Um, he was telling me about this, and uh, the uh, this is a, I just picked up a Newsweek article on it. Will Mexico legalize drugs? 
uh, Obrador explores radical bid to bring narcotics wars under control. Mexico's populist president-elect, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, has considered a range of unconventional methods to address his nation's ills. In a country riddled with corruption and crippled by gang violence, Mexican voters turned to the left for change, which Obrador has promised to deliver. Obrador is mulling the, legis the legalization of drugs nationwide in an effort to nullify the vicious cartel warfare that kills tens of thousands of people each year. Uh, El Pais, uh, El Pais, I don't know how to say it, E-L-P-A-I-S has reported. Uh, according to incoming Interior Minister Olga Sanchez Cordero, Obrador has given her a free hand to do whatever, this is in quotes, whatever is necessary to restore peace in this country. Speaking at a seminar discussing narcotics-related violence Tuesday, Cordero said that, uh, said the order included a possible overhaul of drug legalization. We knew perfectly well about... Oh, he knew perfectly well about my lectures and my articles in the press about the decriminalization of drugs, Cordero said. On the subject of decriminalizing drugs, Andres Manuel told me, and I quote, carte blanche. Let's open up the debate, she said. The U.S.-backed war on drugs has done little to stem the violence since Mexican troops were deployed to the streets in December 2006, though some of the larger cartels have been broken up and their leaders arrested. This has only served to fragment power, setting dozens of smaller gangs against one another in a vicious battle for control. It's, I mean, you know, the U.S.-backed war on drugs has done little to stem the violence. No, it's fucking caused the violence. Like, it's like... Yeah, there's like some people, you know, fucking sitting around, right? Like, let's say, you know, there's some group of people, uh, I don't know, in some town. And then you, you know, you and your buddies, maybe you have like a hundred or thousand people. You roll in and start fucking shooting up the town and trying to take out people. Say you're trying to get rid of like X, Y, and Z group or whatever. And, and then, you know... 20 years later, somebody writes an article because it's still going on. There's still violence happening. And they say that your war has done little to stem the violence. It's like your war is the violence. Like it is illegal. That's the violence. I mean, that's like, I don't know. Anyway, I mean, I guess it is a radical idea um, that war is violence. But I don't know. Seems logical. In 2017, in 2017 almost 29,000 people were killed in Mexico. Um, and just to put this into uh, context, Mexico has about a third of the population of the United States. Uh, let's see, U.S. homicides in in 2017 uh, uh why would it uh, um murder is up in 2017 but not as bad as last year uh everything is broken down by uh Everything is broken. I, I feel like we're in the tens of of thousands. Um, boy, you would really think that this would be a, 
a number you could uh, you could get to pretty easily. <laughs> um, yeah, they they always cite the the murder rate, which is per hundred thousand. I mean, that'd be fine to compare to. Anyway, uh, you know, it's way higher. Like I, um, we have uh, triple the population of Mexico. And maybe half the murders. So, you know, all, all together, I mean, th this is a very high, you know, it's it's like six times uh, the murder rate in the United States going on over there. Um, and crazier is that uh, that's the highest since they've been keeping records. So not, I mean... You know, we you know we don't hear a ton about it. I mean, especially compared to when I was younger. You know, in the '80s and the '90s. You know, South America and all this cartel stuff. I mean, it was. You know, like I mean, think of like Pablo Escobar and stuff. I mean, this stuff was huge news. I mean, that was the Middle East of that time. And it's the worst it's ever been now. I mean, how crazy is that? Uh. You know, and I mean, as we have talked about, I am somebody that actually really believes in that, uh, in the idea that a lot of, of like, you know, dark black ops, black ops or whatever are funded through drug trade. You know, it's like no accident that all this is coming in. Um, so anyway, so uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't need to go into the details of what you know what they're gonna do uh, or. I mean, it sounds like it's very, very preliminary, but I mean, you know, to hear that, I mean, the one thought I had that was kind of interesting, I was like, okay, so let's say like, you know, Mexico did legalize uh, drugs um, for like, just let's say cocaine was legal. What, you know, what does that mean? You know, what are they? So, okay, so they can like produce it and whatever, but it's still, I mean, unless like the, the U.S. followed suit still legal to bring it into the u.s um so i wonder what would happen there and i mean if they were like still like flooding the u.s now with like legal cocaine uh yeah i'd be crazy so i feel like they're probably not like i feel like the u.s is able to put enough pressure you know that there's no way that they're going to um you know legalize uh cocaine or whatever in mexico but it's still cool to hear them talking about it. <clears throat> uh, so another article that I saw this is from the Intercept. Uh, I actually saw somebody share this on Twitter. I think like Scott Horton and some people had retweeted it, and a guy was saying, "Oh, this is like a big story. We should be talking about." Um, and I, admittedly, I'm a little uh, weak on the the Assange stuff, um, but I'm you know I'm definitely very like into uh wikileaks uh, i mean i you know i i mentioned it i think in a previous podcast that <clears throat> previous episode that you know i i i just know you know over the last year or so there's been like this weird kind of growing sentiment that oh like let like people don't like listen to wikileaks anymore like wikileaks is like bullshit or whatever and um it's so uh it's just not fucking you know what I mean? Like, at literally everything they've ever put out has been verified. Um, WikiLeaks is probably the one uh, information source that's, li like, 
literally above reproach. Now, maybe you say they have an agenda for what they put out and what they don't, but what they put out has always been verified. They are 100% accurate. And so that's something to remember when people are like disparaging it or whatever. There is nothing that has ever come from WikiLeaks that has not been verified to date. All right, so the article is, Ecuador will imminently withdraw asylum for Julian Assange and hand him over to the UK. What comes next? Ecuador's president, Lenin Moreno, traveled to London on Friday for the ostensible purpose of speaking at the 2018 Global Disability Subject. Moreno has been using a wheelchair since he shot in a 1998 robbery attempt. The concealed actual purpose of the president's trip is to meet with British officials to finalize an agreement under which Ecuador will withdraw its asylum protection for Julian Assange in place since 2012, eject him from the Ecuadorian embassy in London, and then hand, him o- hand over the WikiLeaks founder to British authorities. Moreno's itinerary, itinerary also notably included trips to Madrid, where you will meet the Spanish officials still seething over Assange's denunciation of human rights abuses perpetrated by Spain's government against protesters marching for Catalonian independence almost three months ago. Yeah, I don't even know what happened with that. That, that shit was fucking crazy. Uh, Ecuador blocked Assange from ex- accessing the internet, and Assange has not been able to communicate with the outside world ever since. The primary factor in Ecuador's decision to silence him was Spanish anger over Assange's tweets about Catalonia. Can you believe it? This guy's not going to be free because of tweets. A source close to Ecuadorian foreign minister, foreign ministry, and the president's office unauthorized unauthorized to speak publicly as confirmed to the intercept that Moreno is close to finalizing if he has not already finalized an agreement to hand over Assange to the UK within the next several weeks. The withdrawal of asylum and physical ejection of Assange could come as early as this week. On Friday, RT reported that Ecuador was preparing to enter in such an agreement. The consequences of such an agreement depend in part on the Concessions Ecuador extracts in exchange for withdrawing Assange's asylum. But as former Ecuadorian President Rafael Carrera told The Intercept in an interview in May, Moreno's government has turned Ecuador to a highly subservient and submissive posture towards Western governments. Um, The central oddity of Assange's case that he has been effectively imprisoned for eight years despite never having been charged with let alone convicted of any crime, is virtually certain to be a pro- prolonged once Ecuador hands him over to the UK. Even under the best-case scenario, it appears highly likely that Assange will continue to be imprisoned by British authorities. The only known criminal proceeding uh, Assange currently faces is a pending 2012 arrest warrant for failure failure to surrender, basically a minor bail violation that arose when he obtained asylum from Ecuador rather than complying with bail conditions by returning to a court for a hearing at his attempt to resist extradition to Sweden. Uh, The offense carries a prison term of three months and a fine. Uh, Assange's lawyer told The Intercept that he would argue that all that prison time is already in serve should he continue towards the fulfillment, blah, 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 whatever, okay. Beyond that minor charge, British prosecutors could argue that Assange's evading of legal process in the UK was so protracted, intentional, and malicious that it was beyond mere, mere fail to surrender to contempt of court, which carries a prison term of up to two years. Just for those charges alone, he's at a high risk of detention for another year or longer. 
Currently, that is the only known criminal proceeding Assange faces. In May 2017, Swedish prosecutors announced they were closing their investigation into the sexual assault allegations due to the futility of proceeding in light of Assange's asylum and the time that had elapsed. The far more important question that will determine Assange's future is what the U.S. government intends to do. The Obama administration was eager to prosecute Assange and WikiLeaks for publishing hundreds of thousands of classified documents, but ultimately concluded that there is no way to do so without either prosecuting newspapers such as the New York Times and The Guardian, which published these same documents, or creating precedents that would enable the criminal prosecution of media outlets in the future. Indeed, it is technically a crime under U.S. law for anyone, including a media outlet, to publish certain types of classified information under U.S. law. For instance, it was a felony for the Washington Post, David Ignatius, to report on the contents of telephone calls intercepted by the NSA between the NSA nominee Michael Flynn and Russian Ambassador Sergei whatever, even though such reporting was clearly in the public interest since it provided proof Flynn, Flynn lied when he denied such contacts. Um, anyway, so it goes on and on, uh, the U.S. Justice Department had never wanted to indict and prosecute anyone for the crime of publishing such material, contending themselves instead to prosecute the government sources to leak it. Their reluctance has been due to two reasons. First, media outlets would argue that any attempts to criminalize the mere publication of classified or stolen documents is barred by the press freedom guaranteed in the First Amendment, a proposition the DOJ, DOJ has never wanted to test. Second, no DOJ uh, has wanted a part of its legacy, the creation of a president, uh, precedent that allows the U.S. government to criminally prosecute journalists and media outlets for reporting classified documents. But the Trump administration made clear that they have no such concerns. Quite the contrary, April in April, Trump told CIA Director Mike Pompeo, now his Secretary of State, delivered a deranged, rambling, highly threatening broadside against WikiLeaks without citing any evidence. Pompeo decreed WikiLeaks is a non-state hostile intelligence service off often embedded by state actors like Russia, and thus declared, we have to recognize we can no longer allow Assange's colleagues the latitude to use free speech values against us. Um, anyway, so, you know, goes this is a, this is a pretty long article, and I hadn't read it before. Um, so, pretty interesting. Um, sounds like he's going to go get turned over to UK authorities where he could possibly do some time and um, but you know it's not like life in prison uh, life in prison or you know any like execution or something for treason um, I also I wonder where where's this guy from uh, he is Australian I guess he's originally from Australia uh, and he also spent, well, they can call him Ecuadorian now, uh, according to uh, Wikipedia. Um, but anyway, so uh, <clears throat> that's the, uh, you know, that's the uh, the scuttlebutt there on, on Assange. Um, you know, I, I wonder if, I, I would assume that WikiLeaks could pretty much function without him. Um, and yeah, it, it is pretty interesting you know, I wonder what 
you know, the fact that, yeah, that they're saying it's like, look, like, you know, this stuff is like published in the New York Times and other, you know, publications as well. Like, why, you know, how can you like target this, you know, this person? Like, how are you differentiating sort of between him and, uh, you know, WikiLeaks and, and the New York Times? Um, I do think it's sort of interesting that the DOJ sort of focuses on the sources and, uh, you know, um, but like, you know, all in all. I mean, it's it's like bullshit, right? I mean, you can get like sucked down in and mired in the details of this, but like, you know, this guy hasn't fucking done anything to anybody. I mean, aside from you know, I don't know what these sexual assault charges are. I mean, that's like a whole other thing. I mean, if this person, you know, Julian Assange raped somebody or whatever, well then, yeah, I mean, he should he shouldn't be protected because he's Julian Assange. Um, but like, sort of leaving that aside, I've no, I don't know how to, you know delve into that um but you know it's also sort of like philosophically cut and dry right if he did it then you know he has to like pay the price or whatever and if he didn't then he doesn't i mean I, you know it's not like an interesting thing to like debate over um but what is interesting is the fact that this guy uh then you know other you know otherwise has done nothing um, you know, hasn't aggressed upon anybody, hasn't stolen anybody's stuff, hasn't threatened anybody, hasn't done violence in any way towards anybody, you know, but he's facing, you know, he's he's been in, essentially in prison for eight years, uh, held up in an embassy inside of London, you know, so I mean, it's effectively in prison. I mean, I, I don't know what he could do while he was in there, but um, I mean, I, I would assume that that is a single building. I mean, he hasn't left it in eight years, like... Uh, and then, you know, some, I, I don't even know, like he's, so he may go to prison because he didn't show up because they wanted to do some other trial for something in Sweden, um, you know, and, and also, you know, I, I mean, I don't get like, where's the U.S. get off prosecuting uh, like an Australian citizen for publishing top secret stuff like how how does like the u.s's reach uh extend there i mean the fucking australian government just be like nah man like your laws like you can you can like try to like force those laws on your people but like no way does that extend you know outside of the border it's crazy you know like what what is defined as top secret in some other country is is now, you know, top secret in your, you know, your country, even though you weren't able to vote on any of the people in there. You had no say in any formation of that government, those laws, that military, those intelligence structures, none of that. You know, Australian citizens have no say whatsoever, but they're subject to those laws. I mean, that's fucking crazy. I mean, those laws shouldn't exist in the first place. But at least you could argue that it's like, well, we let that happen in here, you know. And I'm not saying they don't have similar laws, but, like, if I fucking publish on my, you know, website today some top-secret document from the Australian government, I mean, it's fucking crazy to think that they, they would extradite me there. Like, you know, I mean, it's not like he broke into some, like, you know, NSA facility and, like, stole this information, you know, other people had already had it and he just published it. They gave it to him and he published it. 
So I'm like a thousand percent behind Assange and WikiLeaks and everything, you know, that they do on the website. And I, you know, I I do think that like possibly the one critique is that maybe they are one sided or something. I mean, it's funny because they talk about like the implication is that they were like pro Trump. You know, then it's like you read this article and like the Trump administration has been like outrageously like talking about about like taking him down and, uh, you know, prosecuting and saying like he can't hide behind free speech or whatever, you know, where it was like the Obama administration was like a lot more like mellow about it and, um, you know, whatever. So. Oh, it just keeps going and going. So that's uh, so we had two good things. Uh, one bad thing. Um, you know, we're, we're about an hour and 20 minutes into this. The uh, you know, the other the other things I was going to look at were uh, kind of non sequiturs. They were about uh, administrative costs and health care. And I just thought that was kind of interesting how high they were despite like you know, how little service we get out of it. Another thing was just the exorbitant, uh, these are just things that just happened to come across the, this week, exorbitant taxes on um, wireless service. At some states, your total tax, like in the state of Washington, is over 25%. So like a quarter of your entire bill is going <laughs> to fucking just taxes. Um but outside of that, I you know maybe we could just kind of quickly uh, yeah I don't I don't want to kind of get there. There's like whole other discussions. So, um, but the um, you know we just start sort of popping around. CNN is a little bit more mellow today. Uh, looking at their stuff, they had something about a duck boat tragedy. Seventeen people died. A subject in a deadly Trader Joe's standoff is held on $2 million bail. How long will Mueller's investigation go on? There are signs his office is prepared for a wind down, but interviewing Trump still still appears to be in his plan. Uh, it's it, you know, and something um, to tie the sort of Mueller thing to the the Putin thing. Uh, two two part things were really kind of absurd about it. One was that it's like literally like the eve of this big summit. Uh, Mueller goes out and indicts like 12 or 13 Russian intelligence people. Um, you know, I mean, the odds of that not being like politically motivated are, are zero. Um, but then further, and it's something I've heard a lot around, you know, people talking this week is that, you know, this idea that, like, Trump is his traitor and, like, why didn't he confront, uh, you know, Putin or whatever? And it's like, I mean, there's been no evidence given to us, you know? We haven't seen anything. Like, anybody that is sure that, like, you the that Russia, like, hacked our elections, I mean, they— that. It's literally they're just on a prayer. They're just saying, I I throw my trust behind like, you know, the FBI, the CIA, US intelligence, like NSA, whatever. Like I'm on that team. I believe in this, you know. And the fucking crazy thing is that like today, that people those people are largely Democrats. And I mean, whew, how times have changed, right? Like I mean, back in like 2002, 2003, 2004, Patriot Act coming down, you know, fucking like CIA had been pumping up like Al Qaeda for all those years and we were starting to see the fallout fighting them and like, 
whoo, you know, and now they're just like, you know, flying their flag for like the fucking FBI and, and, and the U.S. intelligence. I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, I I I. I there's just like hardly a group I am less supportive of than like the fucking CIA. Um, and I mean, I know this is like a FBI investigation, but whatever. I mean, yeah, I'm not, I'm not big, big pro FBI guy over here. You know what I mean? Like, I'm definitely not just buying anything they say. Like, and they haven't, it's like they haven't even put out evidence that we could even question yet. Like, it's not even at that stage where people are fucking just totally sure, you know? Um, like, I, I mean, that's it. Like, there is the proof that, like, they are not being logical because there is no evidence. They're just saying, okay, well, he put that in the indictments. Like, that's all the evidence I need. You know, the fucking FBI has never indicted anybody that wasn't, like, guilty before, right? Oh, never happened. They've never done anything political before, you know, never done anything politically motivated. So anyway, uh, that, you know, those two things are, uh, kind of connected with this and, um, they, uh, they're, they're pushing this duck boat thing. They just auto reloaded my page. Another great thing. I love that CNN, uh, automatically just reloads your page. Um, so, I, I don't know, not much stuff interesting uh, on Huff, Huffington Post. There's some really creepy-looking guy named Gaudi on the cover. Trump aide should consider quitting. Um, Huntsman ignores Trump in explaining why he won't resign as the Russian ambassador. The myth of free trade is coming apart. Uh, Trump's... Wow, this would have been a good one to start earlier. Trump's tariff war is the final act of a broken system. President Donald Trump's trade agenda is a corrupt, chaotic mess. Uh, this is one thing. I'm certainly not pro-Trump here, man. He's, his, his trade tariff stuff is pretty stupid. Uh, he made trade concessions to China after its government agreed to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in Trump-branded resort. He announced a modest trade enforcement action. Uh, the president even... Whatever. Okay. Uh, just all the uh, summary of the dumb stuff he's done. As with so many Trump debacles, his bluster, uh, appearance of radicalism, dramatic break with the stable and happy consensus, Washington Post columnist Catherine Rample lamented that he is discarding more than 300 years of settled economic knowledge. Nobel laureate economist Paul Krugman has been more modest, accusing Trump of jeopardizing a free trade system that dates back to former President Franklin uh, Delano Roosevelt. It's easy to forget that just before Trump's election, elite Washington was rethinking the approach to free trade and globalization that the United States has taken since the 90s. Centrist think tanks held major conferences calling to restructure U.S. relationship with China. Hillary Clinton, Elizabeth Warren, and even libertarian experts at the Cato Institute agreed there were more serious problems with the way with, with the way trade agreements were enforced, like, well, I'm sure the fucking, there weren't libertarians that were like, liked the trade agreements. Part of the trouble is that Trump is not pursuing a coherent, consistent trade strategy. Oh, in some matters, he's hard to distinguish from Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, while in others, he does break with the recent past. But even here, Trump is not the destroyer of order and harmony, but the product of a corrupt and broken system. I mean, you act like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama had some like coherent trade strategy. It's just cronyism. 
It's fucking cronyism. There, you're telling me there's consistency between the way that we trade with North Korea and Saudi Arabia? Like, there's, there is absolutely no fucking consistent, reasonable explanation for our relationship, economically or otherwise, with Saudi Arabia. Like, it's a goddamn dictatorship, fucking major human rights violations, but, like, we're fucking just giving them money hand over fist, you know? I mean, come on. Like, so fucking stupid. To understand what's going on here and where it went wrong, we need to start at the beginning. What economists are accustomed to describing as free trade or globalization has another less flattering name, colonialism. Free trade and colonialism are not synonyms. Like, that's one of the fucking stupidest sentences I've ever read in my life. Human beings have been trading across political borders for as long as human beings have recorded their activity. But free trade, in the modern sense, was the conceptual innovation of David Ricardo, a brilliant 19th century economist. I mean, free trade is the beginning, right? That's the natural state. Not having to, like, pay some fucking tariff to walk across, like, a border to somebody else. Like, to not have to pay the king. Like, that was definitely the first thing, right? Like, in the beginning, there weren't tariffs. Then tariffs were invented. It's not like fucking nature has just tariffs growing on trees, right? Like... They, the tariffs are the invented thing. Free trade is the natural thing. The natural thing is that the two parties involved in the trade are the ones that are figuring out what happens. That's the natural state. The fucking tariffs, that's the mafia shit that came later. There's no fucking way it happened the other way around. There's absolutely no way that the first fucking trade between two people had some mob guy sitting on their fucking there and saying, hey, you know, you're giving me fucking like 10% of those fucking bushel of fucking corn or whatever you have there. I mean, what the fuck, man? God. Ah. Uh. And people, this is it, right? This is Huffington Post. This is so popular. And so many people, I promise, have fucking shared this. It's actually not as much as you think. 1.5K. But, you know, that like somehow free trade is the new thing. It's like, nah, man. I mean, we definitely went through a long period where like there was a lot. Like, and there's not this just fucking monolithic trade thing in the world, right? Like. All right, he laid out the theory of cooperative advantage. If every country focused on producing what it made best and then traded with other countries that did the same, everybody everywhere would enjoy the best of everything. In this process, uh, Ricardo argued that that every country would become richer this way than it would have tried to produce everything at home by itself to illustrate the point ricardo presented a thought experiment oh whatever it's we get it right but there are only so many workers someone who spends the day smashing grapes can't devote that same time to running a loom tariffs couldn't change the root problem I guess I have to read this paragraph. To illustrate the point, Ricardo presented a thought experiment in which two countries, Britain and Portugal, produced just two commodities, wine and cloth. In the 19th century, Portugal was famous for its wine, while European nobility coveted the British textiles, imports of good 
Portuguese wine were tough on British winemakers. And if the British government wanted to protect its domestic wineries, it would put up tariffs against Portuguese wine, making the foreign stuff more expensive in British stores, and that could be just fine for the winemakers. But there are, are only so many workers... Someone who spends the day smashing grapes can't devote the same time to running a loom. Tariffs couldn't change the root problems with the British wine business, the soil, the climate, a rocky semi, blah, blah, blah. As a result, propping up the inefficient, inefficient British wine industry would sap resources. Perhaps worst of all, it would make British, mean British drinkers would have to settle for their own lousy wine. The obvious solution for politicians to keep out of the way and let people do what they would naturally do, absent government meddling, trade freely. Under a system of perfectly free commerce, um, okay, Ricardo was on to something, but he took an awful lot for granted making this point. He didn't have much to say, for instance, about how the British textile business actually operated in the real world. England's spinning and weaving factories relied on cotton from India and the United States. This cotton was cheap, and the British factories, by extension, so wonderfully efficient because plantations owners relied on slave labor and violent exploit. Yeah, okay. Blah, blah, blah. Ugh. I mean, is there any possibility that there's anything smart in this, right? Like, okay, so you're saying because there was slavery in the U.S. that free trade, it, there's a problem with the idea of fucking free trade? Um, John Keynes. Oh, John Maynard Keynes grew up an ardent free trader, viewing the unimpended movement of goods almost as part of moral law, but the war and the depression changed his mind, though he still cherished the free international exchange of ideas, knowledge, art, hospitality, technological advances seem to have left many Ricardo's observations obsolete. True, climate and culture played some role. The British were never going to be great winemakers. But such products were tangential to industrial order dominated by heavy manufacturing. You could make a car anywhere. The advantage of national specialization was fading. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's not true. Well, then, I mean, if you can make a car anywhere, then, like, everybody should just make their cars at home. I mean... <laughs> If it's exactly the is is if it is exactly as easy and profitable and everything's the same, no matter where you make a car, then every country would make their cars at home, right? Like there's because the shipping is different. I mean, you might as well eliminate the shipping. Uh, free market support for apartheid. I mean, I can't. I, you know, I see where they're going. Today, Trump for uh, I mean, they're just, you know, I, I'm looking at the WTO and the AIDS crisis. Somehow that is part of fucking free trade. Yeah, hey, tar tariffs would fix that. That's a good, that's a good call. I mean, by eliminating tariff barriers with nations that had poor labor standards, in a record of human rights abuses, these trade packs encouraged U.S. companies to shift domestic jobs to countries where labor was cheap. And what has happened? I mean, what, like, is life worse in China today or 10 years ago? Uh, I don't believe there's much debate. It was worse 10 years ago than it is today. And are there more fucking manufacturing there, you know, happening there or less? There's more. I mean, like... It, 
It's just like, uh, I mean, if your choice was between working in good labor conditions or poor conditions, well, then sure, like the good labor conditions are great. But if your choice is between working in poor labor conditions or starving to death, then working in poor labor conditions are obviously the right choice. And that's the reality of it. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, it, um, uh, this is another thing, uh, another one that Dave Smith did a good job on. And I, I feel like uh, uh, Peter Schiff has done it really well over the years. But, you know, just I actually think I may have my one of my first podcasts when the early episodes, I, I may have talked about it. But, you know, like just like this idea that, um, you know, it's so short sighted to start like like, the you know, the classic one is like child labor laws or whatever. You know, I mean, it's such a luxury to even have child labor laws, you know. I mean, again, like, you know, think about like the natural state of a person. Imagine if you and your partner had two children and you were the only people on earth, right? Like your fucking kids are going to work any possible way they can, you know, like maybe you'll teach them how to like clean the animal carcass or plant fucking food or whatever, you know, whatever it is, clean clothes make soap do something because like you guys are probably just gonna fucking die and not continue on right like you're like your kids are not gonna have kids you're gonna all die if you're left by yourselves to fucking fend out in the fucking in nature in like what the world is you know without any technology without any human you know uh, cooperation and just your little like nuclear family and the luxury we have is that like we have such abundance in the united states that like we don't even really need children to work um but like to think that like we needed a law like we need laws to pass like what if, you know what if you do have a family that's like really poor uh in the u.s right and they're like trying to get out and under and like you know, the kid can go down and work, like, at the local store. You know, maybe the guy gives him a job. And, like, you know, maybe that little after-school job that kid has, he's 13 years old or whatever, it, like, allows him to maybe, like, pay for his food, like, by himself. You know, maybe, like, that weight is taken off the parents and they're able to, like, do some other things with that money or whatever. You know, buy him, like, shoes or better shoes or, you know, whatever. Anyway, I mean, like, it's like, you know, I mean, kids aren't, like, weren't working because they're, like, had evil parents, you know? I mean, I'm not saying evil parents don't exist, but for the most part, right, that's not the deal. Like, the deal is they're working out of necessity, and, like, if you make it illegal, like, you're going to hurt the economy. Like, you're going to make everything less productive, you know, like, by, like, removing them, them from the workforce and, like, making them just mouths to feed, uh, you know, in an area that's super fucking poor, that matters, you know. And, like, these working conditions. I mean, you know, again, man, it's just a choice between you want a job or no job. Like, you want a shitty job or do you want to starve to death? 
You know, like that's the thing. Like that's the place where like you want to come in there and, you know, fucking have this like Western fucking idealistic idea like that, you know, somehow the natural state of humanity is abundance and like education and health care for all, uh, you know. It's just not, you know, that's not, we had to like, we had, we're standing on the shoulders of like, a, like a bunch of generations of work and sacrifice and like research and thought and development to like get us to where we are today. And like, that's how we're here. And if you start casting the blame on the free market, like you're like the thing the freedom, the thing that allowed us to like have the recent explosion in like the 1800s of abundance and wealth, it was the free market, you know? It was freedom. It was free trade, you know, to whatever extent it, it existed. I mean, it's like that's the thing that did it. And fucking the free market is not causing slavery, right? Like you can fight slavery independently of whether or not there are tariffs. Like, I just do not see the connection here. Like, you know, uh, it's it, it, they, these are just two separate things, and they just fucking conflate them. They just say them together, like, because, you know what I mean? Like, I guarantee you there's some fucking, like, rapists that are uh, uh, participating in a tariff trade. So should we demonize tariffs as being pro-rape? I mean, there's just, there's fucking, there's just zero logic. And, like, you know, I fucking, oh, my God, I hate when they start off with, like, they're, uh, you know, um, he's trying to go against, like, hundreds of years of economic thought. Like, it's such fucking bullshit. So, anyway, that's what the dummies over at fucking, or maybe they're not dummies, it's just fucking evil motherfuckers over at Huffington Post are talking about. Um... And I'm going to, uh, I think I'm going to uh, wrap up here. Uh, we're like, I think an hour and 40 minutes in. So uh, we, uh, I, I guess you could look real quick on antiwar.com. Uh, Merkel, I think this is after the Russian Trump thing. Can't rely on U.S. to oppose, to impose world order. Well, that's good. Uh, France aids Assad Syria after a Russia deal. So, Again, like, right, everybody's so opposed to fucking Russia and Assad, and, and Assad now you have France, uh, you know, on their side. Um, a loophole eases sale of arms to governments that kill civilians. That's pretty cool. <laughs> um, I'm sure that that's a Trump thing. Uh U.S. airstrike killed 14 civilians in northern Afghanistan. Uh, another Gaza ceasefire after five killed on Friday. U.S. adds another 200 million to the Ukraine military aid. U.S. urges U.N. sanctions until North Korea acts on denuclearization. Uh, that's the, the summary of that. And um, all right, well, I, I may give another spin at like a short, uh, a shorter iPad episode. I'll see if I can make that happen. Um, and if I really get some time, you know, I'll do another full episode this week. I just don't want to promise that. Uh, but if at the at the uh, very least, I will be back next week. And uh, so keep your head on a swivel, everybody, because they are fucking lying left and right. Peace.